You're listening to the Liberty Grace Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit libertygrace.ca. The last few weeks marks the resurgence of the box office across the globe where the pop culture brought in a lot of attention in the media. Either it was Team Barbie or Team Oppenheimer or there was something called Team Barbenheimer. Um, I don't know whether you've watched any of these movies. Uh, It was interesting how both movies with completely different genres and historical context gathered a lot of attention together. While Oppenheimer focused on the historical nuances of the World War II, Barbie created a dystopian world where matriarchy takes precedence. While the Oppenheimer was reconciling um, human intelligence and creation of destructive force, Barbie focused on a comparative utopia where women rule the world. My goal today is not to promote or review these movies uh, and ask you to pick a team, uh, but to draw your attention where to see that these movies reflect a lot of human realities. The real human world is not simple. It is complex, it is filled with complications, it is filled with dynamics of social, economic, and political power that is not fair for everyone. Depending on which side of the ceiling we find ourselves in, we are are in a constant dreaming uh, and envisioning world where we are are envisioning a comparative utopia or a perfect world where we are on the fairer side, where justice is served. If I ask you to draw a picture of a perfect world, I believe we all have something to contribute. From the beginning of this year, we've been reading the book of the, uh, reading the Bible together as a church. We're doing a chronological study of the Bible. One theme that has been constant is that God does not give up on us. He's constantly inviting us to the perfect world where the human beings find themselves repellent to God's invitation. One of the reasons that we see is that this God's world is not in our own terms. It is purely designed by God for God's purpose to fulfill his own purposes. Not everyone is comfortable with that. There's a sense of loss of self which draws people away from God. At this time of the year, we are in the book of prophets and the theme continues. God pursues his people and people rebel against him and draw away from him. Today we are looking at the book of Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah was one of the significant prophets in the history of Israel. He ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah for 40 long years. A little context here, the kingdom of Israel was divided into southern kingdom and the northern kingdom after the reign of King Solomon. So the southern kingdom is referred to um, the kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah's ministry could be divided into three significant parts of Judah's history. The first part is where uh, the good part, uh, the first part is the good part where King Josiah uh, was ruling the nation. King Josiah was a godly king and he was known for his spiritual reforms. The second part of Jeremiah's ministry, which constitutes the most of the book of Jeremiah, the kingdom of Judah, 
was going through a religious and a political struggle. And there were four kings during that time. People rebelled against God and were engaged in idol worship and were associated with people that God doesn't want them to. And uh, during that time, Jeremiah was God's mouthpiece who not only proclaimed God's voice to the people, but he also suffered in the hands of authorities because he proclaimed the truth. Jeremiah's ministry, uh, coming to the final part of Jeremiah's ministry, culminated in a very pivotal part of Israel's history. Babylon became the superpower during that time. And uh, Babylon invaded the kingdom of Judah. It destroyed Israel. It destroyed Jerusalem. It destroyed the temple of God's people. Also, it took uh, the people of Judah as exiles. The passage that we read today provides with a glimpse of ministry of prophet Jeremiah. If you carefully read the book of Jeremiah, you could sense the heartbeat of God. We will be able to sense that God longs for his people. He wants that people worship him. He wants people to know that there is no other God besides him. He alone is God. Yahweh alone is God. The nature of God is such that he is vested in this world. Uh, it's pretty ironic because this is a world who is created and sustained by God. The majestic nature of God is compared to none. He's a God who created the universe that, const that constitutes of billions of galaxies. He's God beyond our comprehension, beyond our reason, beyond our scientific knowledge, and beyond everything that human knowledge has access to it. Yet, God is committed to us. He's vested in a relationship with us. Last week, uh, Daryl highlighted one of such aspects of God where he talks about God is fighting for us because we matter to God. The book of Jeremiah highlights the fact that we matter to God. If you read Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10, we get to see God's calling to Jeremiah where God says, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Now, this may sound like a cryptic message or a message that sounds terrific, uh, sorry, terrifying, uh, but it is uh, God's call to Jeremiah for his people uh, that there's a judgment impending on those who are in sin. And at the same time, there is hope for all those who return to God. If we listen carefully to this message and read the rest of the book, we'll be able to hear God's anger. God is very angry. And, and there is a love aspect of God as well uh, through that anger. Why is God so angry? Because he loves, because we matter to him. Uh, he does not show inf indifference, but instead he pursues. We matter to God. Let us uh, delve a little deeper in understanding in what sense we matter to God. I would like to highlight three different themes that the book of Jeremiah emphasizes on how we matter to God. Theme number one, the created order matters to God. The created order matters to God. The passage that we read today talks about Jeremiah's field trip to the potter's house. God asked Jeremiah to visit the potter's house so that God can teach him a lesson. Jeremiah looks at a potter who is engaged in a hard and concentrating work. Most pro probably, as the Bible archaeologists would claim, uh, that this potter's wheel would be a st two stone wheels 
that are placed on a vertical axis, the lower of which is spun by kicking of the feet, and the upper one, upper wheel is used to shape the clay. I'm sure today there are much more fancier ones where uh, the pots are made or the vessels are created over the, uh, through the clay. Now, if we sense the, Im Im if we sense the imagination of that uh, potter who is working that hard, it is an emblem of intentional hard work. The potter's feet, hand, his eyes, his mind, and his body, and his everything is committed to that vessel that he is creating. He's also committed to the design that he has in mind, as it is said in the passage. God teaches Jeremiah that, that God is like a potter who is at work. We matter to him. We do not uh, exist by accident or by chance. We are work in progress in our potter's hand. Have you ever seen a potter at work or be in a pottery class? It is not putting some coordinates together and tossing it on a machine and mass producing the pots or vessels. Instead, it is intentional, it is creative, it's a work that demands a lot of patience that I lack. That is what God says in chapter 18, verse 6. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. In fact, the Hebrew word used for the work of the potter, it's yosher, which means to fashion or to shape or to create. God reminds Jeremiah that he is the creator and we are the creation. God did not just create the world and left it to tend for itself, but he is vested on it. He's constantly at work. He's constantly at work in our hearts. He's molding us, he's shaping us, and he's making us as his own. And he wants us to be the person who, whom he wants us to be. We are his creation and we matter to him. He chose us and made us his own and he never ever gives upon us. He chases us with relentless grace and sometimes even breaks our heart the way the potter breaks the clay and molds the vessel to the design that the potter intends. We live in a world that teaches us to create a world and version of self according to our own desire, according to the ways that seem fit to us. Only the creator knows what our life purpose is. We don't. We do not know. That is why it is important to find ourselves in all humility before God, seeking God's purposes fulfilled in our lives. Since we're God's creation, and it is God who created everything, and God is vested in his creation, created order matters for God. Created order matters for God. What do I mean by that? Let me read chapter 23, verse 24. It says, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. God reminds the house of the Israel that this earth belongs to God. He not only created this earth, but his presence fills the earth. He created everything with a purpose. He designed the world with purpose that brings him all the glory. However, for uh, the house of Israel, God's purpose didn't matter. God's law didn't make any precedence. They did not deal things with truth. They did things that brought dishonor to God's name. They direct their steps in their selfish ways and in their selfish desires. In a nutshell, they did what it seemed right in their sight. In doing that, they messed up God's created order. It's like I go to somebody's house and mess up their decor. 
The owner of the house kept the decor with a particular purpose and intention and design in mind. And if I go and mess up the things, the owner can get really pissed. The God of the Bible created this world. He owns this world. And his presence fills this world. He created an order based on his purpose and intention. He created laws that fulfills his purpose and intentions. He revealed us that law through the scripture. That is why everything that we do, every decision that we make, every relationship that we maintain, everything that we do, small or big, matters to God. We are in God's world where there is a created order. We are called to revere that created order and follow God's law. The opposite of not following God's law is actually bringing chaos to the world. Quite often we have a tendency to see the laws and commandments as, as a list of duties, as a mere list of duties. We want to fulfill these duties so that we can please God and score brownie points in order to receive God's blessing or get to heaven or to be saved. But the truth is, following God's commandment does not guarantee God's favor. In fact, there are people who also follow God's commandment without even knowing God, without having any relationship with the God of the Bible. Also, the moral standards of God is so high that any amount of good work or any amount of right conduct does not match up to God's standards. We are saved, we are favored purely and purely by God's grace. We receive God's favor purely by his grace. So the purpose of a right conduct is not to earn God's favor, but because we are favored by God. And because we are favored by God, we revere God's created order. We follow God's law in all that we do. Be it mundane or it world impacting, God's law always take precedence. Because for God, created order matters. Another aspect in understanding the aspect of God's created order is that God maintains that God is the creator and we are his creation. He does not allow anybody to take up his place. It is a common desire in human beings since the time of Adam and Eve is that we take up his place, that we like to become like God, we like to have a God's eye view. We want to run our lives the way we like and the way it suits us. Well, this being the root desire, people take up the place of God sometimes in a smaller scale or sometimes in a much larger scale. Irrespective of the nature of the scale that we operate on, the principle remains, God is the creator and we are his creation. And that is the creator order. The kingdom of Babylon was the world's superpower during Jeremiah's time. They were devouring nations for fun. They even, uh, for fun. They were even, they even destroyed big nations like Egypt at that time. God even asked, allowed the Babylonian Empire to take hold of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, and they, they also took the people of Judah to exile. But when we come to the final chapters of Jeremiah, God pronounces judgment against the great Babylonian Empire. The details of the judgment in a paraphrased manner would sound something like um, that um, Babylon will be winnowed like a flower. Uh, a great empire will be reduced to its ruins, a city that no one will desire to live. God reminds the people that he is God and we are his creation. It doesn't matter how a big empire we create or how powerful we are or where we find ourselves in the status quo. God is still the creator 
and we are his creation. He does not allow the big players to take control of the disadvantaged for long. He allows them to flourish, but his judgment is always impending because the created order matters to God. Dear church, it doesn't matter where you find yourselves in the world of fairness and justice. Be assured that for God, created order matters. This would mean three things. We are, in God, work, we are work in progress in God's hand and he's committed to us in molding and shaping us to be a person that he wants us to be. God's law precedes everything that we do. If we go against God's law, we bring chaos. The world belongs to God. Thirdly, God is the creator and we are a mere creation. God does not let anybody take his place. In his due time, he brings justice to the victims. Created order matters to God. The second theme that we find in the book of Jeremiah is true worship matters to God. True worship matters to God. When we read through the pages of the book of Jeremiah, the dominating theme that runs through the prophecies of Jeremiah is that God calls the house of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, to back to him. The house of Israel, all the people of Judah, has given themselves in idol worship and worshiping false God. True worship matters to God. The book of Jeremiah reminds that, uh, as we've seen, um, the world belongs to God, and God of the Bible alone is God. He is the God of all creations, and he's the God of all nations. The reason that the understanding of this concept is important is that um, um, in scripture, or in biblical times, there is a territorial understanding of God where every nation had their own God. Every, um, every God was connected to a particular land. Different gods were worshipped for different purposes. There is God for prosperity, there's God for fertility, there's for rain, there's for war, and so on and so forth. That is why in scripture where we see Yahweh again and again establishes himself saying that I am the God of all creations, I'm the God of all nations, I am the God of all people. Even though Yahweh appeals himself to people, the people of Judah always resorted themselves to idol worship and far away from the way worship that God's intended them to be. God hates idol worship because true worship matters to him. True worship matters to him because there is no other God beside him in the entire universe. The book of Jeremiah uses the language of marital relationship and sexual infidelity to explain idol worship. God charges the people of Judah that they are unfaithful in the marital relationship with God. And they are committed in adultery in devoting themselves to other gods. These are some serious language and grave accusations. Sexual union in marital relationships are one of the most intimate and that one can imagine. It's a kind of relationship where the guards are off and the couple are in the most vulnerable situation. Adultery can be viewed as making a mockery of that vulnerable relationship and it can become one of the most unforgiving offense in a relationship. Yahweh accuses of adultery when his people resorted themselves to idol worship. How about us today? Are we succumbed to any idol worship? Paul Tripp, a pastor, author, and a conference speaker, in his book, Instruments and Redeemers, Hand says, Human beings by their very nature are worshippers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom or 
we serve. This means that we are all prone to idol worship. How do we know that we are worshiping idols? How do we know that what idols do we worship? Interestingly, this actually can be understood from the concept of adultery. I learned this psychological concept, um, which how do we know that you are cheating your spouse? When you intentionally choose to spend more time with the other individual, feeling more codependent and more comfortable to make choices with regarding your life decisions and whose acceptance becomes pivotal, then you know that, okay, you're somewhere in the zone of cheating your spouse. Idol worship is something very similar. You spend more time and energy with your idol. You feel dependent on your idol. Your life choices surround your idol and you seek your idol's acceptance as well. Now, what are these idols? These idols are mere images and sculptures that are made with stone and wood. Is there anything wrong with these images and sculptures? They are in fact a good reflection of human creativity. The problem occurs when, uh, when these products of human creativity has a sense of meaning attached to it. And that meaning defines who you are. Similarly today, the, the idols that we can have be anything. It can be a jobs or money or family or church attendance or praying abilities or good works or intelligence and the list can go on. Now these are good things and some of them are great things. But if, this de if these design who we are and life feels meaningless without these, they can always lead to idol worship. If you are married, you will agree with me. We step into marriage because we love the other person. And we have the excitement to get to know each other, get to know the other person at the deeper level. But what happens in the marriage is that you start getting to know yourself more instead. Uh, you start staring at your sins and your idols exposed in marriage. I remember the first time when Blessie told me that I hurt her. Um, I was shocked. I couldn't believe that she would say something like that. I thought I was a good guy. I don't hurt anyone. Th that day I learned that I am a good guy is the idol that I carry in my heart. The manner in which marriage exposes our sins and idols, the deeper relationship with God will always expose our sins and idols in our life. God appeals to us through the book of Jeremiah that you don't need any idols to derive life's meaning. All the idols are temporary. They always have the tendency to disappoint you. God is eternal. Worship him and him alone. In all areas of our life, worship God and denounce idols. True worship matters to God. May our hearts drop closer to God and engage in true worship where we need, where we weed out all the idols in our life. Third and the final theme of the book of Jeremiah, his people matters to God. His people matters to God. The book of Jeremiah reminds us that he is the creator and we are his creation. It also reminds us that God delights in true worship and he charges idol worship as adultery. The people to whom Jeremiah were prophesying were failing in both areas. Their moral life fell short of God's standards. They were accused of injustice and oppression. They exploited the poor and the vulnerable uh, sections of the society. They broke God, God's covenants. They persecuted God's messengers, and the list is longer. Their spiritual 
life was in ruins as well. They were worshipping idols and they were not devoted to Yahweh. Now this is very bad. And very bad because people of Judah is living in complete rebellion. The prophecy of Jeremiah, um, the impending judgment on them is in response to that. How do we make sense of that today? How do we make sense of the judgments that we read in the book of Jeremiah and other prophets today? According to uh, biblical scholars, one of the way to understand the book of Jeremiah is through the understanding of covenant. What is a covenant? Um, it's a formal agreement between uh, two parties, uh, which a uh, language that was uh, very much prevalent during the biblical times. Um, it was a common practice at that time where the kings and the vassal state would come together and have an agreement. And the covenant is a legal document that binds both the parties. And this legal document also has this um, uh, uh, rules and stipulations and um, agreements where blessings and curses are mentioned, which would mean that uh, if the vassal state follows everything that the sovereign nation says, uh, the blessings and the benefits of the covenant applies. However, if the vassal state breaks the covenant, they become the subject of the curse or the judgment of the sovereign king. The book of Deuteronomy, in fact, and we saw that a couple of months ago, is a perfect example which uh, portrays the book of covenant. If we use the covenant language for uh, the book of Jeremiah, God is the sovereign king and the kingdom of Judah is the vassal state. The issue at hand in the book of Jeremiah is that the, the kingdom of Judah has broken the covenant and are faced with a charge of a curse which is brought upon them through the pronouncements of judgment. In a nutshell, the kingdom of Judah breached the trust of the covenant and are facing consequences. The good news, however, is the message of hope which is unique in God's covenant to his people. God is not a random king who treats a vassal state like an acquaintance and chews them off when they fail to keep the covenant. Instead, God's covenant uh, to Judah carries an overturn of relentless grace and unconditional love. However, the gracious and loving nature of God doesn't spare the consequences of rebellion. Instead, instead sin is treated as sin, while the grace of God is always available for the repenting believer. There was always hope in God's economy. We read chapter 31 to 33, we read God's promise of restoration, which signifies God's commitment to his people. God promises restoration, God promises healing, and the new covenant. While this covenant is broken, God promises a new covenant. Let us read in uh, chapter 31, verse 33. It says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In verse 30, this is called as the new covenant. And this new covenant is what God, not, uh, God planned not only for the people of Israel but also for all of us where we become part of God's household. Jesus initiates this new covenant during his last supper with the disciples where he took the bread and the wine which represents his body and the blood, which becomes the sign of the new covenant. Jesus took upon the curses and the judgment of the covenant upon himself so that we may live. My dear church, in Jesus, there is no condemnation 
but there is life. In him, there is always life. And this hope exists not because as a human, we have a scope of improvement, but because God is gracious. Let me repeat that. The hope exists not because we have a, uh, as human, we have a scope of improvement, but because God is gracious. He pours his grace upon us and makes us his own. No amount of good works or devotion or knowledge qualify for us for his grace. We are his people because he is a gracious God. And to this gracious God, his people matters. He never, he never gives upon them. He does not tolerate them when his people sin, but definitely doesn't give upon them. He's like a potter who is determined to create a vessel that he seems as best. He's committed to his task. He's working hard on us because we matter to God. Dear church, we worship a God who not only created this beautiful universe, but is committed to it. The creation matters to him. The created order matters to him. True worship matters to him, and we matter to him. So may I invite you to find rest in God's presence. May you be assured that you are loved, belonged, and God is committed to you because, God, because you matter to God. And he says, I am your God, and you are my people. Doesn't matter where you are in your faith journey, God is committed to us. Let us pray. God, our hearts are filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. The knowing fact that you are committed to us, that we matter to you, that our neighborhood matters to you, that our church matters to you, that we matter to you. Help us that, that we, are, uh, we are able to repent on our sinful ways and be able to experience your love, experience your grace that you have for us. Enable us that we are able to grow in your covenant that you, you have brought in for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.